Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pagan. And I'm John Michael McGrath. We're on every weekday during this 43rd Ontario election campaign. Today on the pod, Sabrina Nanji joins us to recap the week. We look at where the parties stand with Franco-Ontarians, some new poll numbers to share, and tracking the leaders on the hustings. It's Friday, May 20th, day 17 of the campaign, so let's get to it. Well, as we do every Friday, let's start by welcoming Sabrina Nanji from the Queen's Park Observer to our little podcast here. Sabrina, how you doing? Pretty good for a Friday and, you know, 13 days away from Election Day. Still hanging in there. Hey, it's the Friday before a long weekend. You should feel a lot better about uh, <laughs> your world today. Anyway, what was uh, recap the week for us, if you would. What st- stood out for you first and foremost? Yeah, uh, you know, we had some more candidate drama uh, happening. Uh, you know, we're, we're still reeling from the debate. We're seeing some post-debate polls starting to roll in. Uh, not much movement there. I, I was a little bit surprised by that one. Uh, I went door knocking in Von Woodbridge, had some difficulty finding some Stephen Del Duca votes. Voters. Uh, there's some some new members of the the 901 Club uh, over in the NDP. You know, hoping to uh, put pressure on Andrew Horvath to step aside if if she doesn't win on election night. Uh, a lot more private sector union endorsements for the PCs. Uh, a kind of controversial promise from the NDP uh, to remove tolls from for truckers on on Highway 407. Uh, a lot of buzz about that one, uh, for better or worse, I should say. And two of the leaders are, are now benched because they've contracted COVID. That's Green Leader Mike Schreiner and NDP Captain Andrea Horvath. So uh, lots lots to talk about this week for sure. Let's uh, dwell on the 407 thing for a minute. This is the NDP's uh, proposal to remove tolls for commercial trucks on the 407 uh, that would, they hope, divert uh, some truck traffic from the very heavily congested 401. Uh, you, you, when you were counting that, you said for better or worse. Uh, do you want to give us the, the pros and cons as you hear it? Yeah. So, I mean, this was, it seemed kind of like a last ditch uh, promise here because as you guys know this was not included in the NDP's costed platform uh, that they released so far uh, the you know the party line seems to be that uh, you know they want to sprinkle some surprise announcements during the campaign and yet they couldn't really answer many details on this like you know the uh, the timeline for it uh, they say that they want to bankroll this this promise uh, by pursuing those penalty fees from operators. Uh, you know, the Ford government did not go after uh, $1 billion in penalties. So uh, they were a bit cagey on, on some of the fine print of this, uh, raising a lot of questions. But OK, it's, it's still a, a flashy promise from them nonetheless. I think that the Greens were very quick to put out a statement calling the NDP copycats here. It's something the, uh, the Greens have proposed back in April. Uh, and, you know, a lot of dippers that I've spoken with are, are not very happy about this. They're saying that this will benefit trucking companies more than anyone else. Uh, it seems like a, a, a 
a pitch to the 905 voters in particular and drivers there, which we know is a very seat rich area, you know, a lot of close races in 2018. So certainly, you know, politically speaking, this is a very interesting pledge from the NDP. Uh, and I guess we have more to, to stay tuned for with some surprise announcements coming from them in the last two weeks. Sabrina, let me follow up on the York Region story that you uh, were uh, alluding to a moment ago. You said you did some door knocking or following uh, some of the um, door knocking that was going on in Vaughn Woodbridge, which, of course, is the riding represented in the last house by Michael Tobolo, but before that by Stephen Del Duca. So we've got a rematch about to take place. Um, I mean, we all know, all of us on this podcast know that it depends where in a riding you knock on the doors, because obviously you, you can hit a neighborhood that's very I think of University Rosedale, right? If you go to the university part, you're not going to find many Tory voters. But if you go to the <laughs> Rosedale part, you're going to find a lot of uh, Tory voters. So give us a better sense about um, who you were following, what you found at the doors, and, and sort of which way the riding seemed to be leaning from what you were seeing. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously this was a, a juicy place to go, I thought, because the polls have kind of called Von Woodbridge a toss-up. And we all know Del Duca lost this seat to Tobolo in 2018 uh, by roughly 8,000, uh, or sorry, he got 8,000 votes, you know, uh, uh, there around the last time. And I, I thought, you know, I, I want to go in and see, because we know that Del Duca is relatively unknown to the rest of the province, but of course in Von Woodbridge, they, they know who he is. He was their former rep and they gave him the boot in the last round. So I picked a neighborhood in Woodbridge. Uh, it's near the Piazza del Sol Plaza. There's a really nice gelato shop. I picked up an ice cream called La Paloma there. Uh, and, and so I, I went door knocking in the neighborhood and it was really hard for me to find someone that was outrightly supporting Stephen Del Duca and was ready to, to cast their ballot. I, I hit, uh, you know, uh, dozens of doors was out there for about two hours before hitting up the the gelato shop I, you know it was a very hot day so there I had a, a bit of a you know vested interest in that one personally but uh, <laughs> you know it, it what I was hearing from people was that uh, I guess the biggest sticking point is that you know even the people who were leaning liberal uh, have voted liberal in the past one thing that I kept hearing was that they weren't happy about mandatory COVID vaccines for students in schools I spoke with uh, this man named John, uh, who is a father of four, you know, he has kids between 10 and 18. So they're all in school. And he said that, you know, I was with the liberals and willing to, to give Del Duca another shot. Uh, but, you know, he just lost me there. And, and I'll admit, you know, I was a bit surprised that I couldn't find um, anyone who was, you know, a, a staunch supporter of him. So I asked the party if they could help connect me with somebody uh, that that that, you know, that likes Del Duca and had nice things to say about him. And they did. And I spoke with um, a senior, Lena Talone, who says that she's been a big Del Duca fan. She she kind of acknowledged, you know, the last time around, maybe he made some mistakes, but we all do. And she thinks that he's on the right track now. So I think what we're seeing in the polls as well is that it's a very close race between um, Tobolo and Del Duca. Obviously, Tobolo, um, he's been relatively low profile like he's had his his fair share of of drama um you know people didn't really like that he was wearing a, a bulletproof vest to go on a ride along with police which which seems like ages ago now uh but but he's also been demoted twice in, in cabinet so 
certainly, you know, Del Duca, I think, uh, has his work cut out for him just based on what I'm hearing and, and what pollsters are saying. Uh, but it's still early days yet. And so I think that, you know, he still, of course, has a, an opportunity to turn this around. And, and when he's getting asked about uh, it this week, you know, Del Duca says, you know, we're, we're, we're winning. Uh, where he's feeling very confident, but of course, in a campaign, any politician would would say that. Right. I, I think uh, this morning he was asked about it and, and said, you know, very emphatically, you know, let's be clear, I'm going to win in Vaughn Woodbridge. And it's like, well, yes, of, of course, he's going to say that. Um, on your reporting on the the 901 club, the the pressure uh, that Andrew Horvath is is likely to face if she does not, in fact, uh, form a majority in the next legislature. Um, and I don't mean to talk down your reporting on this. I, uh, sincerely, that's not what I'm doing here. But, you know, we are looking at a hypothetical here of, you know, if uh, Horvath, uh, you know, comes in second again or, or, you know, looking at the polls, you know, potentially comes in third. Um, I, I, I sort of think, like, of course she's going to face pressure <laughs> to uh, resign. You know, this is uh, not her first uh, kick at the can, so to speak. Uh, she already had a lot of pressure to resign in 2014 with the, the disappointment then. So, you know, why is this distinct to you? I think, well, because a lot of people, especially in 2018, the the folks for this 901 club that I'm talking to, they think that they could have at least held forward to, uh, you know, a smaller majority, if not a minority. Obviously, that was a change election. A lot of people were unhappy with the liberals. Like there were a lot of factors at play here. But I think they're looking at the polls. They're looking at some of the drama that's been happening with their candidates, the handling of that. I'm thinking of uh, Steve Parrish and Ajax, uh, who's no longer longer running for them. Uh, you know, Kevin Yard kind of unceremoniously uh, losing his, his rare nomination challenge. Uh, they're laying that at Horvath's feet. And of course, you know, emotions are running high. This is, we're in the middle of a campaign. And so a lot of people aren't necessarily willing to, to give their names when they're speaking out about this. But I guess that's part of our job, right, as journalists to vet who we're speaking with. And they don't really want to hurt the NDP either. They, they believe in the NDP policies. They believe in the brand. Uh, but they just think that they can't do it with with her at the helm. And uh, like I said, emotions are running high. Uh, if essentially, they're, they're just waiting her out. And you're right. A lot of people have told me this is kind of a water is wet story. But at the end of the day, uh, when they're looking at the polls, they're seeing the NDP kind of stagnating uh, in some spots, second place, but also, you know, very much uh, neck and neck with, with the liberals overall. Uh, they're, they're not feeling happy about that. And they're wondering, you know, I think a lot of us are wondering why is that and I think part of it has to do with a strong liberal brand uh, and after the debate you know uh, I think Horvath not having as many breakthrough moments kind of attacking Del Duca as much as she was attacking Doug Ford uh, a, a lot of new Democrats that I'm talking to aren't, aren't exactly pleased with how all that all went down. Okay Sabrina we're uh, about to go into a holiday weekend any last words about what we can anticipate then and for the week ahead? Yeah, I think, you know, everyone's still going to be hitting the hustings. I think certainly not having Horvath and, and Del Duke, or excuse me, uh, Mike Schreiner, the, the Green Leader, on the campaign trail in person uh, is going to hurt them. I think especially Andrea Horvath. She tends to do well when she's one-on-one -on -one with somebody. Uh, so, so this, you know, having to campaign virtually might 
hurt them a little bit. Uh, I think, you know, Steven Del Duca, we might see him out more in his own riding. He's been targeting Tory seats uh, on his his own tour. But uh, I did ask the conservative camp if Doug Ford will be at the cottage. And they said, absolutely not. <laughs> he'll be <laughs> he'll be uh, campaigning uh, as usual. So we're, we're getting into the final hours. I'm expecting some more aggressive campaigning, maybe some more dirt coming from people. Uh, I am all open for any brown envelopes that anyone wants to <laughs> slip under my door. I'll bet you are. Okay, Sabrina, thanks so much. And we'll talk to you again next Friday. Thanks, guys. So long. Sabrina Nanji from the Queen's Park Observer, who joins us every Friday on this podcast. All right, John Michael, let's get back onto the hustings here. Stephen Del Duca was in the nation's capital today to release the Liberals' so-called Ottawa platform. Among other things, the party's pledging to build a new Ottawa Civic Hospital campus by the year 2028. They would commit 50% of provincial funding for Stage 3 of Ottawa's regional transit plan, and that means extending the LRT to Barhaven, which for those living outside Ottawa, that's a suburb of the nation's capital, about 20 kilometers west of Ottawa. Uh, he was also in St. Albert, which is a small town just east of Ottawa, with Amanda Samard, who's the liberal candidate for the riding of Glengarry Prescott Russell. If that name rings a bell, it's because she's had a very dramatic last four years. She was elected four years ago as the progressive conservative member of that riding before deciding that they were not good on francophone issues, in her view. And so she left, became an independent, and eventually joined the liberals. She won that riding for the Tories quite handily in 2018 by 4,500 votes. So now we're going to find out whether that's a Simard riding or a Tory riding. It had been liberal, actually, since its creation in 1999. Traditionally, the liberals usually have a very substantial lead among francophones at election time. But what about this time? Well, Ipsos has done some polling on this, commissioned by Radio-Canada, which, of course, is the French language arm of the CBC. And JMM, you're going to bring us up to date on the verdict of that polling. Right. So this was a poll of Ontarians for whom French is their first language. Uh, Ipsos asked which party leader would make the best premier. Uh, more than 31% chose progressive conservative leader Doug Ford. Uh, New Democrat leader Andrew Horvath came in second with over 20%, followed by Stephen Del Duca at 14%. Uh, Mike Schreiner uh, scoring uh, nearly 6%. Uh, however, when it came down to which party they would actually vote for, there was a, a fairly even split between the uh, progressive conservatives, the liberals, and the New Democrats. Not uh, a hugely significant uh, uh, gap between them, though, uh, if you want the uh, the the precise numbers, uh, the Liberals uh, edged out the Progressive Conservatives at 27.7% to 26.4%. Uh, the NDP just at about 219 so, I mean, we go a few different ways here, but uh, Steve, uh, what do you think of those numbers? Well, as I look at those numbers, I, I think they're extremely disappointing for the Liberals. Uh, let's take the 2018 election out of the mix because it was such an abnormally awful election for the Liberals. But if you go back to what are sort of more traditional numbers for them, uh, let's take some of those Eastern Ontario ridings. Ottawa Centre in 2014, Yasser Nakvi won it for the Liberals by 16,000 votes. Ottawa West Nepean in 2014, Bob Shirelli won by 5,000 votes. Uh, the Tories won it four years later by 175, just squeaking through. If you go to Ottawa South, and let's even go to 2018, because that was one of the seven they held, John Fraser held it by 5,000 votes. So even in a year when the Liberals were imploding all over the rest of the province, John Fraser held Ottawa Centre. 
very much so on the strength of a of strong francophone vote by 5,000 votes. If you go to the writing of, as we say in English, Orleans in French, Orléans, Stephen Blais in the 2020 by-election won it by 8,000 votes for the liberals. In Ottawa, Vanier in the 2020 by-election, Lucille Collard won it for the liberals by 5,000 votes. Anyway, you get you get the drift here. The liberals simply are going to have to do better among francophones if they're going to stay competitive with the conservatives, because if they don't, uh, they have no chance. And their success in the past in eastern Ontario has very much been dependent on doing very, very well with francophone voters. Let's also remember this, John Michael, the last leader of the liberals before Kathleen Wynne was Dalton McGuinty, and he was fluently bilingual. Kathleen Wynne did okay in French, too. She brushed up her French a lot uh, during the course of her premiership. Uh, back in the 1980s, it was David Peterson. He was bilingual. Before that, it was Stuart Smith in the 1970s. He was from Montreal originally, so of course he was fluently bilingual. Stephen Del Duca is not fluently bilingual. I don't know that he speaks any French at all. Uh, he was in Ottawa Friday morning for that event, and he barely spoke any French at all on the stump. Uh, only a few words in French. So that's a double whammy of him being the least well-known leader and not speaking the first language of a group that comprises a significant part of the liberal base. It's an issue. Um, all the more so when you remember how bad Franco-Ontarian relations were with the progressive conservatives in late 2018. And as we alluded to earlier, Amanda Simard leaving the PC caucus and joining the liberals. So Okay, that's you asked for my take on things. I probably went on too long, but that's the gist of it. The liberals need the francophone voter. They're going nowhere there. No, and now, I, I would also add, you know, Doug Ford uh, also does not speak French. Rather, uh, notoriously, uh, he has promised to uh, try to learn to speak French. Uh, he says that he was taking lessons before COVID hit, and then COVID uh, predictably blew up all of his uh, free time, so to speak. Um, and yet... Uh, despite uh, a, a lack of personal uh, fluency with French and, and uh, despite some uh, extremely unpopular things that his government has done uh, regarding uh, Francophone policy in Ontario, uh, still, you know, very competitive among uh, Francophone voters. And, I, I, you know, I would su suggest, um, and I haven't done, a, you know, as deep a dive on these Ipsos numbers as uh, perhaps I should, but I, I would suggest that, you know, Every voter has a bunch of different, you know, voices inside of them, for lack of a better uh, uh, phrase here. Um, and, uh, you know, for any person, you know, the language they speak, their heritage, their culture, that is, of course, an extremely important part of why they vote. But it is not the only one. And, for example, many Franco-Ontarians are drivers and they might find it really appealing to uh, have the gas tax cut uh, as Ford uh, has done. So, uh, you know, lots of different things going on here at once. That is a really good point to make. Um, having said that, you know, um, I, I, I sometimes like to put myself in the shoes of francophone voters in this province and see what they think about things. And, you know, they are one of the two founding cultures of the country. And, um, you know, they have they have lobbied for decades to get to make Ontario officially bilingual so far without success. We have French language services, of course, in Ontario where numbers warrant, but that's all. And and progress, you know, from their point of view is not inevitable. And I raise that now because I well remember back in 1985, uh, Bob Ray and David Peterson both got up in the legislature one day to ask questions in French. And Frank Miller was the premier and he answered in French. And that was the first, and if I'm not mistaken, maybe only time in Ontario history when we had three major party leaders 
all of whom were bilingual and could do the business of the province in one of the official languages of this country. And it was a big moment. And we haven't had a moment like that in a very long time. And of course, today, as you rightly point out, Doug Ford uh, has kind of given up the ghost on learning French. Uh, the leader of the opposition, Andrea Horvath, you know, can, uh, can barely get by. I think she can read French in her text, but she's not sure she can uh, conduct a conversation in French. And, uh, you know, no also to Stephen Del Duca and Mike Schreiner. So, again, if you're a Francophone in Ontario, you think of yourself as one of the founding cultures of this country. You think of yourself as speaking one of the official languages in this country. And you almost never hear French spoken in your provincial legislature, except by Francophone MPPs, of which there are not very many. So I just put that out there for what it's worth. Absolutely. Now, moving on, Mike Schreiner did another virtual appearance today as he continues to isolate due to testing positive from COVID-19. He was talking about young people and their issues around affordability and pledged to reverse the OSAP cuts, that's the student assistant plan cuts, and add more grants for post-secondary students. What's the story there? In January 2019, uh, the Progressive Conservatives announced several changes to OSAP funding uh, that had been implemented by the previous Liberal government under Kathleen Wynne. Uh, the Progressive Conservative changes uh, included eliminating the six-month interest-free grace period for recent graduates and uh, eliminating free tuition for low-income students. Uh, that 2019 announcement came after an Auditor General report found that uh, the the previous liberal policies would uh, see costs grow to $2 billion annually uh, by 2021. Uh, the Liberals had initially pitched their uh, changes to OSAP policy as uh, being cost-neutral but the the dispute here was you know they were cost neutral in year one but the the costs were going to grow as more people got access to uh, post secondary education the liberals of course didn't see that as a, a flaw with their policy making they saw that as the point in any event that was the dispute the progressive conservatives made changes to policy the greens are in effect, uh, pledging to uh, reverse the uh, progressive conservative changes and uh, make OSAP more uh, available, more uh, affordable for uh, post-secondary education students. Let's check out the NDP today. Andrea Horvath, the party leader, also making only a virtual announcement. Again, blame COVID-19. She was talking about capping gas prices, which, of course, is a relevant topic any day of the week, but particularly so as we head into a long Victoria Day weekend. What did she have to say, JMM, about how she'd cap gas prices? This is a idea that the NDP have been kicking around for many years. Indeed, uh, before the Ford government, uh, they had proposed a bill in the legislature that would effectively give the Ontario Energy Board the power to regulate uh, gasoline prices in the same way that the Energy Board currently regulates things like natural gas and electricity. The uh, NDP are suggesting that you know you could have regional regulation and that they would set a maximum price. Uh, so you know the NDP are suggesting that you know you could have, for example, you know regional price caps. You wouldn't necessarily pay the same price for gasoline everywhere in the province. They they recognize that there are real world differences why uh, the cost of gasoline is different in in different places. Um, but Horvath speaking today said that you know these uh, prices that we are seeing 
uh, for for gasoline currently. Uh, she accused oil companies of gouging and said that you know instead of the solution that uh, the progressive conservatives implemented in power uh, that the uh, Liberal Party uh, at the legislature voted for to uh, cut gasoline uh, taxes, uh, she contrasted this by saying that you know capping gasoline prices um, you know really puts the the cost of the uh, policy on uh, oil companies and not on uh, drivers and as long as we're looking at what happened on the hustings today the progressive conservative party leader doug ford was in niagara falls and what did he have to say there uh, he, first of all, uh, received the endorsement of Niagara Falls Mayor Jim Diodati, uh, he, you know, a, a prominent uh, local uh, endorsement there. Uh, he promised to invest over a billion dollars uh, over the next three years to expand opportunities in the skilled trades. This has uh, obviously been, uh, you know, part of the government's push to uh, both, you know, woo building trade unions, but also, you know, address a, a, a serious labor shortage in the province. Uh, you know, one of the really uh, interesting developments, I think, in this campaign, um, and it, it you know it predates the campaign with the work that uh, people like uh, Labor Minister Monty McNaughton uh, have done to, to woo unions. You know, the the Tories have managed to get endorsements from six private sector unions. Uh, you know, we've talked about this a lot. Uh, you know, in large part because of their commitment of billions of dollars of uh, construction projects, but. Uh, the obvious sort of uh, counterpoint to this is that public sector unions uh, still really not having a lot of time uh, for the Tories. Uh, you know, the uh, OSSTF, for example, uh, this is the the uh, major secondary school teachers union, uh, has endorsed uh, two green candidates, but is, is largely endorsing uh, new Democrats. Uh, I think it would be fair to call their strategy, you know, anybody but Tories. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Sabrina alluded to this earlier in the podcast that we're starting to now see polls trickle out after the leaders debate and whether that would have any effect on a change of public opinion is now becoming, well, clearer for the moment anyway. This poll that I'm about to give you numbers for came from Council Public Affairs. Again, after the leaders debate, and it's got the progressive conservatives at 37 percent, the liberals at 28 percent, the NDP at 24 percent. Now, of course, that's just the total vote. You've got to translate that into seats, which is often difficult to do. But council translates that into a very slim PC majority government, 66 seats. You need 63 for a majority. So that's not a lot of wiggle room there. It would have the liberals at 31 seats, which would be up significantly from the seven they won four years ago. And the NDP down to 26 seats. They won 40 four years ago. The Greens, according to council and this poll, would keep their one seat in Guelph, that being my Shriners, but no other breakthroughs. Again, according to this one poll, and as I so often like to remind people, polls tell you what people thought yesterday. They cannot predict what people will do tomorrow. But JMM, you can come to some conclusions, I think on the basis of this one survey, about how decisive the leaders' debate ultimately was. Yeah, I think I would uh, prefer to see a few more polls before I, I get really sort of confident in my assertion here. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, some debates uh, really do, you know, make or break a politician. They really, uh, you know, move the numbers dramatically. We've talked about, uh, you know, the, the effect of the 1995 uh, televised debate before on this podcast. Uh, but other debates don't. Um, you know, uh, I think just back to the last election in 2018, when, you know, the, the liberals had... Uh, had their moment with Kathleen Wynne saying, you know, sorry, 
not sorry and like pushing a social media ad out at the exact moment uh, that she said that in the debate and hoping that would change their trajectory. And it, it really did not. Um, you know, this debate, if these numbers are replicated in other polls, it would seem to suggest that uh, while it didn't, uh, you know, rocket the Tories into, you know, the mid 40s or something like that. Um, you know, it also didn't hurt them, uh, didn't really give the liberals the boost they need either. So Steve, I've got one more thing. Uh, you gave us a bit of a Latin lesson yesterday. And now I have a lesson for you about old English or uh, maybe Danish. <laughs> or maybe they, okay, this I got to hear. Go ahead. Onward, uh, sir repeatedly, uh, both uh, over the last few weeks and even in this episode, we have used the word hustings. Um, and my father, who, uh, you know, has more than just my TVO work email to contact me with, uh, asked me about the the derivation of the word hustings. And even though my father knows how to use Google at least as well as I do, I decided to do the research for him. So here goes. Um, <laughs> hustings is one of the words that entered the English language uh you know, in that like hundred years or so when, uh, you know, a big chunk of England was being run by some uh, charming Danish visitors called the Vikings. <laughs> um, the it's, it's a compound word uh, coming from uh, or two words uh, like hus, like a house and ting, which is like uh, an assembly. Uh, the, that word ting shows up today in the, the, the names of the parliaments for like Iceland, Norway, Denmark. And uh, so it means like a house of assembly. And originally, uh, a, a husting or what we now call a hustings was like a, a high court. And it was where people gathered to, you know, hear, you know, see important hearings, that kind of thing. And then over uh, the, the centuries, that became a place where during elections, people gathered to hear uh, candidates speak. And, uh, you know, I, I think one example of this, I'm not sure if this is like a perfectly accurate comparison, but if anybody who's ever watched an English election, uh, or a British election, I should say, um, you know, on election night, all of the candidates gather in one place to hear the results being read. Um, you know, that that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Um, but uh, yeah, so a, a hustings is like the, the, the gathering place where uh, we now, you know, uh, uh, have the, the, the arguments about politics. And it comes from uh, the Vikings, of all things. <laughs> My goodness, it was Latin yesterday. It's uh, Danish, Norwegian or Vikings today. I can only imagine what we're going to have for people next week. I, I'm going to have to brush up on some ancient language. Uh, Greek, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, try Sanskrit. Let's really get uh, you know out there. Why don't we try that? Uh, well, okay, that was good. That was good. I never knew where the word hustings came from, and now I know. So thank you for that. Now, we're going to do one final item before we sign off uh, and do our quotes of the week. Yesterday, we talked about the mandate letters that Doug Ford has been trying to keep secret. Those are the letters, of course, that he gives to his cabinet ministers essentially with their marching orders of what he expects them to accomplish in their term. JMM, you pointed out that Kathleen Wynne and Justin Trudeau both made their mandate letters to their cabinet ministers public. Now, Ford not only hasn't done that, but he's also gone to court to keep them sealed. And yesterday, when we talked about this fact that the Supreme Court of Canada would now hear arguments on this subject, you said that they, the Supreme Court, would ultimately have the last word on this, and I suggested not necessarily. I said if Ford got a decision he didn't like, he could use the notwithstanding clause of the charter to overturn the court's decision and keep those letters secret. Turns out 
not for the first time. You were right, and I was wrong. I got an email from a guy named David Harrison, who was a constitutional policy advisor for the Ontario government during the Charlottetown Accord negotiations. So we're going back 30 years ago. And he told me, the notwithstanding clause is only available for use in a charter case. This mandate letter business is not a charter case. The CBC, which is trying to get the letters made public, didn't use the charter in its arguments, but rather used a provincial freedom of information law. As a result, if the charter isn't being argued, then the notwithstanding clause is not an option. So the court will, in fact, have the last word. So let's correct the record there. And McGrath, give you props for being right in the first place. I mean, I, I accept uh, Mr. Harrison's assessment of these things. I think that's that's probably correct. But, you know, lawyers are endlessly creative and somebody could still try and turn this into a charter case somehow. So hope springs eternal, Steve. Oh, in that case, if they do, then I'm coming back at you with a correction of my correction and saying <laughs> I was right in the first place. Anyway, we'll wait for due time for that to happen if it does. Okay, during the RIP period, we do our quotes of the week on Fridays, and we'll present one quote from each of the four major party leaders, and we'll have those immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. Uh, we also want to remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday. Uh, you can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash onpoly newsletter. And I think this week we are going to talk about the fact that this campaign is getting, what word are we looking for here? Uh, Dirtier? Pointed. Okay. (laughs) Pointed is better than dirtier, but I think we're both right, actually. Uh, Okay, here we go. Our quotes of the week. Uh, You know their voices by now. Doug Ford, Andrea Horvath, Stephen Del Duca, Mike Schreiner. Then why did you tell little kids like my own daughters that they couldn't go to Mm -hmm. playgrounds and that police should have more power to card? trample on charter rights indiscriminately. Oh, okay. Why was that your solution in the midst of that moment of crisis? Why? Why then? Why then? Del Duca, as I said earlier on, folks, was was everything perfect? No, it wasn't perfect. But if there was an issue, I got up there, I made the change, I apologize. But Playgrounds let's, let's, let's and police. just talk about that Playgrounds for a minute, and police. Mr. Del Duca. For two and a half years, literally 24-7, I was working on this pandemic. It's easy to sit back from the, from the sidelines, when you didn't have to make the tough decisions that I had to make, and criticize. You have the easiest job if Mr. you just Ford. sit there and criticize. And the absolute tragedies that took place there. I think about people like Kathy Parks, uh, who was traumatized uh, by the death of her father in a private uh, long-term care home. Lots of families watched as loved ones, as the armed forces showed us when they arrived, uh, dying in long-term care homes of, of malnutrition and dehydration. We are partisan. We are all running to be premier. But there is something that goes beyond partisan politics, or at least there should be. Uh, And that's the fact that we are all Ontarians. We are all in this fight together to get through COVID truly to the other side. So we can protect the nature that protects us, the nature that provides the foundation of the wealth and prosperity and what people love about living in South Muskoka. And those are our quotes of the week. This week's episodes were produced by Katie O'Connor and Matthew O'Mara, editing from Matthew and Larry Curry. Production support from Nikki Ashworth, Albert Wisco, and Jonathan Hallowell. Special thanks to Sabrina Nanji for joining us. That's day 17 of this 43rd general election campaign. We are off on Monday for the Victoria Day holiday, and we hope you all have a great holiday weekend. We will be back in your feeds on Tuesday. JMM, as they say in 
Danish or Norwegian or Viking or whatever. We'll see you on the Hustings. <laughs> see you Tuesday, Steve. Bye.